So we're in the book of 1 Samuel. Last week we looked at the chapters 9 to 12, uh, which chart the rise of Saul, who had become the first king of Israel. Uh, Saul had tremendous potential. He was humble, at least he was to begin with, and the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. At the end of chapter 12, Samuel takes a step back. He was in charge, he was the nation's leader, but he hands the reign over, or the reigns over, to Israel's newly appointed king. And he makes a, a long speech, and it takes up a, a whole chapter, but the, the, the most important part of this speech is that the king and the people must obey God. Um, as a reminder, verses 14 to 15 and chapter 12, here's what Samuel says. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hands will be against you as it was against your ancestors. So chapter 12 ends with a bit of a cliffhanger. Will the king and the people obey God, or will they turn away from God and throw the nation back into chaos? Well, sadly, Saul was disobedient to God, and we see the cracks starting to appear in the very next chapter, chapter 13. So the Philistines amass a huge army against Israel. Saul is at Gilgal with his troops, who we're told were quaking with fear. And Saul is waiting for Samuel to arrive, bringing instructions from the Lord. Samuel is supposed to arrive on the seventh day. The seventh day comes, and there's no sign of Samuel. And the situation is getting desperate because Saul's troops are starting to scatter. He's got people deserting. So Saul is overwhelmed by this feeling that he's got to do something and fast. So he offers up a burnt offering and an animal sacrifice to the Lord. And uh, Saul knew full well this was not something he was meant to do. This was a huge no-no. Only priests were allowed to offer sacrifices. Anyway, just as Saul finished making this sacrifice, Samuel arrives. Uh, he's not late at all. It's still the seventh day, just a bit later in that day. If only Saul had waited a few more hours. Instead, he dispensed with God's timing and God's plan, and he rushed ahead. How often do we give way to our emotions and rush ahead of the Lord? Negative emotions such as anxiety, fear, anger, and stress tend to make us very reactive. I was once booked to go on a, a climbing trip in the Alps with some friends from work, including my boss. And one evening, I got a phone call from the boss's PA saying that um, he wasn't going to be able to stay in France as long as he'd hoped. Uh, he's going to have to come back a bit early. So she was rescheduling our flights. And I hit the roof. I, I said, well, just because he's got to come back early doesn't mean that I do. And this has got nothing to do with work. Why is she rescheduling my flights? And I got straight on the computer and I sent an email to my boss. Yes, the, the dreaded email. Needless to say, I got the tone completely wrong and had to do a lot of backpedaling the following day. 
And uh, of course, my uh, flight wasn't rescheduled. It was very easily resolved. Um, but I jumped ahead. Uh, I, I, when we get stressed and anxious, we think we've got to act immediately. When often what we really need to do is wait on the Lord, take time to pray, sleep on it, and allow God to speak into the situation. Now, the prospect of having one's holiday cut short is a very 21st century Western problem. doesn't really compare to the prospect of having your whole army annihilated. Uh, but the principle is the same. Saul let his emotions get the better of him, and he rushed ahead of the Lord. Remember that Samuel wasn't even late. Saul literally chose sacrifice over obedience. And as we've seen, obedience was the very thing by which Saul's kingship would be judged. So in chapter 14, the war with the Philistines continues, and the Israelites have gained the upper hand. And for some inexplicable reason, Saul makes an absurd oath. Verse 14, he says, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So effectively, he calls a fast. There's a time and a place for everything, and fasting is something that's best done when we've got time to be still, to reflect, and to hear from the Lord. To be weak and hungry in the heat of battle is not a good idea. You wouldn't fast on the day that you were going to go and run the Brisbane Marathon, would you? Saul's ridiculous oath put his army at considerable risk. Saul's oath was a meaningless uh, show of devotion from a king who was fast going off the rails. He, he seems to set great store in these gimmicks, uh, but really all that's required of him is obedience. But it gets worse. Uh, later on, when Saul inquires of the Lord to find out whether he should pursue the Philistines, he receives no answer. And he assumes that God's silence is due to there being somebody in the Israelite camp who has sinned. And so he makes another foolish oath. He says, as surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. Well, you know what's going to happen, don't you? Jonathan was found to have eaten some honey on the day of the fast. He had actually been off uh, attacking a Philistine outpost. He had no idea that his father had made this oath. Nevertheless, Saul fully intended to kill his own son. Fortunately, he was talked out of it by the men who uh, pointed out that um, Jonathan was a hero and that his actions had uh, done a lot to, to bring about this turn of fortunes and them gaining um, ascendancy over the uh, Philistines. Now, if you read these chapters in full, you're going to hear a lot about Jonathan's exploits, and I'd encourage you to read these in full, but they are very challenging uh, chapters. So Saul started well, but now he's beginning to appear in a different light. Uh, rash, erratic, uh, unstable, even a little deranged. And in chapter 15, he goes even further off the rails. At the beginning of uh, chapter 15, God tasked Saul, and you would have seen it there in the, uh, in the reading, God tasked Saul with destroying the Amalekites completely. Now, many of us will find this quite disturbing. 
You know, when we think about it, 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 you know, has God really commanded the destruction of a people group? So firstly, why is this happening? Well, when God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, the first people to attack them were the Amalekites. The Israelites were weary, worn out, trudging through the desert, and... uh, the Amalekites mercilessly and without provocation attacked the stragglers. So they like, were like a pack of hyenas going after a wounded animal. The, the ones coming up behind who were, who were slower, who were struggling, they, they picked them off. And 300 years later, 300 years later, they hadn't changed. They were still cruel and violent and depraved. They most likely engaged in the pagan practices of the surrounding nations, people like the Canaanites, which included bestiality and child sacrifice. They literally threw babies into fires while they danced and rejoiced. They were unimaginably proud, uh, sorry, unimaginably evil and proud of it. it. We shouldn't be surprised that God's judgment came upon them. Uh, we will all face God's judgment. And for those who reject Jesus in this life, the consequences are terrifying. But the Amalekites' judgment was brought forward. Incidentally, no one gives us a greater warning of the dangers of the life to come for those who reject Jesus than Jesus himself. Jesus uh, spoke about the impending judgment more than anybody else. But he was also the one to give himself a sacrifice so that those who believe on him might be saved. That's the other side of God's judgment. You see, to get a full picture of God, we need to understand that he is both a just judge and a merciful savior. You can't have one without the other. If there's mercy without judgment, there can be no justice. You can't just say to people, oh, it doesn't matter, no no worries, Uh, sin doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. It's not. But if there's judgment without mercy, there can be no hope for any of us. We balk at the idea of God using Israel to completely destroy the Amalekites, but God works in and through history. That means that God works in amongst all the mess and the muddle and the chaos and the sin and the evil. God works through all of that. And of course, that's going to get messy at times. Of course, we can't use these chapters to advocate war, ethnic cleansing, or any form of violence, because we live under the new covenant. We read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus, and Jesus told us to love our enemies. If you read the the whole Bible, and I hope you will, you will come across some difficult texts, and I'd encourage you to look into them, ask questions, pray about it, seek understanding. But if after all that you still struggle to get your head around it, you know it's okay to put some things in the I don't understand this yet file. I've put a lot of things in that file over the years, and many of my questions have been answered in the fullness of time. But I think all of us, when, we'll die, when we die, we'll have some, some stuff in the I don't understand this yet file. But then we'll be able to ask God, face to face, and we will know that he is just and loving and merciful and good and pure and holy in every sense that you can use those words.
But after all that, the point of the story is that Saul was given a clear command and he didn't carry it out. Not because he had a moral or philosophical problem with it, he didn't, but because he thought he knew best. He destroys all the Amalekites, but spares their king Agag and takes him prisoner. And he allows his men to take uh, whatever might be of use to them. So all the best sheep, the cattle, the calves, the lambs, all the livestock. So Samuel went to meet Saul and found that he'd already gone to Gilgal via Carmel, where he'd uh, put up a monument not to honor God, but to honor himself. Uh, And when Samuel reached Saul, it was evident that he was very pleased with himself. He greets Samuel by saying, the Lord bless you. If he was Irish, he'd say, top of the morning to you. It's a very cheerful greeting. Uh, Actually, I've never heard an Irish person say that. uh, My apologies, Geraldine. You say it. Okay, good. Well, there you go. It's a cheerful greeting. He says, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel's like, oh, have you really? You've carried out the Lord's instructions. Well, what is that bleating of sheep and lowing of cattle I can hear? Because they were literally supposed to destroy everything. Saul blatantly hasn't done what he was commanded to do. Imagine you're having a house built. And uh, you meet the builder on the site of your new home. And the builder says, I've carried out all your instructions, uh, job done, it's all yours. And you look at the house, and it all looks very nice, but you can't help but notice that there's no roof. The, the, the job is half done, and the result is useless. And this is the kind of scenario that's being described here. Uh, Saul hasn't done what he was supposed to do, and the evidence is plain to see and hear. And Saul begins to make excuses. Here's what he says, verse 15. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. In other words, the soldiers did it. They're responsible for that, but their motives were good anyway because they were going to sacrifice these animals to the Lord, so God ought to be pleased with us. Saul seems to be viewing sacrifice as a nice present to distract God from his original demands. In modern terms, it would be like attending church services or praying or doing good works as a way of offsetting behaviors and attitudes in the rest of life that are displeasing to God. Kind of like, well, I don't show any love to anyone outside my immediate family, Uh, but uh, I go to church, so God ought to be happy with that. God wants our full obedience, but very often, like Saul, we choose to partially obey God's commands. I'm not talking about when when we desire to be faithful to the Lord and we drop the ball, we make mistakes. We all do that. I'm talking about deliberate disobedience. Ah, that doesn't really matter. So long as I do this, that doesn't, that, that other part, we don't have to pay attention to that. You know, a person might not steal, but if they're stingy, they're not obeying God when it comes to money and material possessions. Um, Someone who's married might not have an affair, but if they view pornography, then they're not obeying God when it comes to uh, sexual purity. 
A person might love their neighbor, but if they hate their enemy, then they're not obeying God's command to love unconditionally. Now, if you struggle to be generous or you struggle with lust or you struggle to love people as you ought, uh, that is because you are human. We all have our struggles. But there's a big difference between genuinely trying to obey God and deliberately choosing to disobey, saying, ah, that, actually, that doesn't really matter. Saul made a conscious decision to disobey God. And it looks like he convinced himself that it wasn't really a problem, to the extent that he was very pleased with himself for, for partially obeying God, so much so that he set up a monument in his own honor. However, partial obedience is, in fact, disobedience. That's what I was trying to get to with the, the, the Lego illustration for the kids this morning. When Saul was challenged about this, he hoped that the mere mention of sacrifice would be enough to get him off the hook. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. In other words, there's no point doing all the outward religious stuff if you're not willing to obey God in other areas of your life. And this was the message for Saul, and this is the message for us too. Samuel goes on, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Saul's arrogance in thinking that he could choose when and how to obey God was uh, as offensive to God as idolatry. And Samuel makes his case emphatically, and after much remonstrating, Saul finally gets it. He says, I have sinned. I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive me my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Saul is basically saying, I've messed up. Please forgive me. Can't we just go back to the way things were? We worship a God who is always, always willing to forgive those who truly repent. But in this life, forgiveness can't always lead to restoration. Sin is serious, and sometimes the consequences are irreversible. A paedophile who repents and gives their life to Jesus is still never going to be able to work with children. A treasurer who steals from church funds may not be able to act in the position of a treasurer again person might be forgiven, but they can't always be restored. And, and that was the case for Saul. He wants to go back with Samuel, worship God, and put it all behind him, but he can't. Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. But notice he doesn't say, the Lord has rejected you, the Lord has abandoned you, full stop. He doesn't say that. He says, the Lord has rejected you as king. The position is being taken away from Saul, but not necessarily the relationship. God still loves Saul. God would still have a relationship with Saul, longs for Saul to repent and return to him. But that's now down to Saul, whether he's willing to do that. But the position has been taken away, not the relationship. As Samuel turns to leave, Saul desperately clutches at his cloak and tears it. 
And Samuel says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. So now we know what's coming. Israel is going to get a new king. And we're going to be introduced to him next week. His name is David. We're told that David is a man after God's own heart. Uh, But even David had deep character flaws. Even David couldn't be everything that Israel needed. And he certainly can't be everything that we need thousands of years later. But there is one who can, in the words of a friend of mine. A king who lives in perfect obedience. A king who obeys only one voice. A king who is truly after God's own heart. A king who does not decay but is forever. A king who is not only just but is the perfect judge. A king who loves us even to the point of death. A king who won't cause us to rebel against God but will lead us to trust in God. A king who doesn't dodge the reality of sin but dies to overcome it. A king who can take our disobedience upon himself and make us righteous. A king through whom the ultimate freedom, the ultimate salvation, and the ultimate love can be found. Jesus is a king worthy of our love, allegiance, obedience, and worship. He's the only king that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we recognize that um, the book of 1 Samuel is, is actually a, a very difficult book. It presents us with a lot of challenges, and we can find parts of it disturbing. We don't f- always fully understand. But we know that you are loving, and that you are just, that you are a just judge and a merciful Savior. We trust you, Lord, and we pray that uh, we can be fully devoted to you, not paying lip service to your commands, but striving to obey you in every area of our lives. We know that that's not the route by which we're saved. It's not that we have to be really good. It's what you've done for us in dying for us. But our loving response to you should be that of faithful obedience. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will help us with this today and every day of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.